0: You are listening to the Mill Sunday School podcast. Turn to First Thessalonians chapter four, starting in verse thirteen. This is uh, some verses about the end times, which is our subject this month. Specifically, this this verse happens to do with uh, the rapture, and so uh, First First Thessalonians chapter four, starting in verse thirteen. If you're there, say, I'm there. Oh, good. It says this, Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep. And Paul, in this passage, as well as a few other passages, talks about death as falling asleep. Like we would use the phrase, maybe passed away. It's a nice way of saying death. Uh, Paul uses those who have fallen asleep. So we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the to the Lord's own word, we tell you that you are still alive, you who are still alive, you who are left until the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. And then here's the, uh, uh, the verses about the rapture. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven and with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet call of God, the dead in Christ will raise first. After that, those who are still alive and are left will be caught up. Everybody say, caught up. I don't know what that means exactly, but it sounds pretty sweet. They will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so uh, we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, let us encourage each other with these words. Let's pray this morning. Father, we do thank you right now that you are coming back, that we can look forward to that. God, help us grow in the, in the excitement of your return. Help us grow in the excitement of knowing that, that you are God, that you are holy, and that you have not just left us on this earth alone, but you are coming back. There will be a second coming, and God, we thank you for that. We love you, and help us learn about that this morning. And everybody screamed? Amen. 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 There was this guy uh, a long time ago. He was born, uh, in 1800, 1800. He was born in London. He, uh, grew up, kind of went to college, was deciding what he wanted to major in and what path his life was going towards. And he decided that he wanted to take the path of being a lawyer. He uh, had a very systematic mind, a very legal mind, a very orderly kind of mind, thought he would be good at that. Became a lawyer, was a lawyer for one year, and then decided, eh, I don't really want to do that. How many of you like to change your mind about majors and college and what you're going to do in life? Yeah, lots of people do. It's what you do when you're in your 20s. So this guy in his 20s changes his mind from being a lawyer. It's like, I want to get ordained and be a pastor. And so he becomes a pastor. He's he's, uh, sent to Ireland to pastor the... uh, the, this peasant community of people in Ireland, and in the same way that John Wesley used to ride horses around, kind of a circuit riding, circuit preaching, and preach in different villages, go to homes, conduct a church service in a home, and then uh, give communion and things like that. This guy, who I've yet to name, uh, did that in, in Northern Ireland, in, the, in this peasant county of, of uh, Ireland. And uh, when he was 27 years old, he was on a horse riding to do some uh, circuit riding and, and evangelism, and he fell off his horse and was seriously injured and bedridden, requiring surgery, which is no fun, especially considering he he lived in the 1800s, which uh, surgery back then was very much, very more crude than it is now. That's a very poor sentence structure. I apologize. I have a little cold, so it's, you know, blaming on that. Anyways... He, he, as he was in uh, the hospital getting surgery, days and days and months of overcoming uh, his injuries, he read the Bible in, in, a, in a kind of a very orderly, systematic way, a way in which maybe a lawyer w- would read a Bible, someone w- with that kind of mind of bringing order and structure to reading the Bible. And he uh, came up with something called dispensationalism. We are talking about John nelson darby raise your hand if you've ever heard of john nelson darby he is the father of dispensationalism he is the first person to come up with the idea of a pre-tribulation rapture which if i'm just throwing out terms if you haven't heard those terms before we will explain them today He's the first person to, to say that uh, God works in dispensations, in ages, in such a way that he deals differently with people in different ages. And so the beginning of that is easy to agree with and just say, yeah, God deals with people in the Old Testament maybe differently than he deals with people in the New Testament because there's a different covenant. But uh, John Nelson Darby said, "There's lots and lots of dis- dispensations, many dispensations, and the end times especially can be divided out into different dispensations. And you can read the Bible in such a way that you can order and timeline and, and graph and lay everything out. And so John Nelson Darby, the father of dispensationalism, uh, has uh, I think the, like the what were the the, ble- the left behind books have a lot." Uh, they have to thank John Nelson Darby for dispensationalism. The Left Behind series is dispensational end times thinking. If you ever saw the movie The Omega Code, kind of an exciting movie along the lines of uh, the Left Behind series, or uh, if you've ever heard the theology of like Dallas Theological Seminary or Moody Bible College, they are very dispensational when it comes to the end times and how God works in different ages. And and so and if you've ever heard the term premillennial pre-tribulation, dispensationalism, as far as interpreting the end times, you have to be thankful to the dude, John Nelson Darby. And so we're going to talk about that way of viewing the end times today. It's a pretty fun way of viewing the end times, in my opinion. And so uh, before we do that, ah, some announcements. I got to wipe my nose every once in a while. It's kind of gross, actually. Apologize. (laughs) Lighten up, everybody. I'm just blowing my nose. All right. Uh, let's see. Announcements. If you're newish to the Mill Sunday School, uh, there's visitor cards on all the tables. If you fill one of those out, uh, you could bring it to me. I would love to meet you. You could bring it to the nice people in the back. They would love to meet you. Give you a free gift just for coming today. And, um, and we want to thank you for checking out the Mill Sunday School. Uh, let's see. Next week is Thanksgiving weekend. There will be Mill Sunday School. Even though there's not going to be Mill Friday night, there will be Mill Sunday School on Sunday morning next week. In fact, our friend Robert Stinnett is going to be here. He wrote a book very recently called The End Is Now. Anybody pick this up? Anybody read it? Anybody? Yeah, I see those hands. Uh, It's a really cool book. He writes... uh, he did a ton of research for the end times, and it's, it's kind of a satire about what if God like practiced the end times on this small like Kansas town, <laughs> and so they experience the rapture and tribulation and stuff, but the rest of everybody else it doesn't, and so it's, it's pretty funny, and just has cool insights to the end times, and it's, it's well written. It's Robert Donald the III, who is a pastor here at the church. He's the producer, director of uh wonderland and the thorn and stuff so he's going to be here next week so are you going to be here next week say yes yes Yes. we'll be here we'll be listening to robert donald stennett the third talk about his book the end is now and he has done a ton of research on the end times he will be bringing that information with him not just uh silly kansas stuff about the end times so uh yeah i think that's about all i have as far as announcements um what? I hear people like don't announce this. Uh, no, nah, I don't want to announce that. All right. Let's look at, uh, in your notes, it says, a Millennial, Non Dispensational View. And so, in your notes, I, w- I want to first talk about, okay, if you're not a dispensationalist, then what are you as far as viewing the end times? Uh, and so, I want to talk about the not the. Ex- the non-dispensational view of the end times first, and then compare that and say, okay, what is dispensational view? uh, So we could talk about it in comparison. So, amillennial, non-dispensational view of the end times is the kind of the majority of church history. If you look back and see uh, how did people uh, throughout history, the Middle Ages, the early church, view the end times... It was a non-dispensational, usually an all-millennial view. For instance, Augustine had that view. A guy named Clement, a guy named Origen, a guy named Luther, a guy named Calvin. Uh, All these people had a non-dispensational view, seeing as though the dispensational view is only about 200 years old. So pre-200 years ago, people had a non-dispensational view of the end times. What in the world is a non-dispensational view? What in the world is a dispensational view? Are you ready? All right, first, let's talk about, before we talk about that, do you remember, uh, if you were here last week, we talked about the, the five for sure's, remember that? Like what what's the end times all about? Everybody has these different opinions. What can we all as Christians say? Okay, this is for sure going to happen. Do you remember some of those? Yell them out. Jesus will return. Jesus will return. What else? There's five of them. Four more. Judgment. There's going to be Judgment. End of the world as we know it. Thank you. No one knows when. And then did you have one? There, there will be a resurrection of of believers and non-believers for the eternal judgment. So those, those five things are happening for sure in the end times. And then as far as dates and seasons and, and, and timelines and orders, there's a lot of debate over those things. But we just talked about the five for-sures. I'm going to erase this. It says the Mill Sunday School, but it kind of looks like the Mole Sunday School. <laughs> <laughs> Vern did that for us. It's it's pretty cool, actually. He's a graffiti artist. All right, I'm going to do a little chart of all millennial dispensationalism. So if you're taking notes, you can uh, maybe write this out. This is probably one of the most simplest charts you will see concerning the end times because it just has, let's see, okay, here's the timeline. Here's Christ when he came. So this is uh, uh, first century A.D. Is it up there? Yes, it is. Okay. And here is, let's see. Wait, I'm going to erase this to here, give myself some more room. So here we are now. Mill. Whoops. I just built the mill wrong. Very awkward. Uh, Man. Uh, So Christ came. There's been like 200 years of history. We are sitting here right now and then there's usually like a little break line. We don't know when the end times will start, uh, but pre, uh, excuse me, but amillennial dispensationalism says that at some point there'll be some, uh, so this is all one thing. So some bad stuff will happen and then Uh, J.C. returns, turns, and uh, there is a rapture. Do you know what a rapture is? A rapture comes from the Latin rapio, which the Hispanics get uh, rapido, which means quick or fast. It means literally to be caught up, like quickly go. And so the, the rapture is Those people that are living when Jesus returns get raptured up. They're just caught up in the air, the passage that we just read. So, this is, so we're still talking about all millennial dispensationalism. So, some bad stuff happens. And then Jesus returns, unknown hour. There's the rapture. There's, uh, some judgment. And then, uh, the end of the world as we know it. And so this is a very simple chart, don't you think? I know some of you have have studied the end time stuff before and and there's like, oh, there's tribulation and then there's the Antichrist and then there's seven bulls and seven seals that get poured out, et cetera, et cetera. This view just says, okay, there'll be one moment in history, the culmination, culmination of history will be Jesus' return at the same time angels come down, trumpets, people get raptured off, there's judgment, there's the resurrection of those that have died, and the end of the world happens in like one big moment. And so this is a very simple chart compared to some of the charts that we will get to in just a second. And so this view, uh, very simple, this view is uh, a, a non-dispensational view. This view is held by people, um, I guess, critical People that are critical of this view, of amillennial dispensational view, would say, would, would say, hey, what, when you look at the Rev, book of Revelation, why don't you read it more literal? They would say, uh, when you look at the book of Revelation, when an amillennial non-dispensationalist looks at the book of Revelation, they're very idealist. They would say, oh, it's all very spiritual. It's It's uh, symbolic. Uh, they would say, they could be accused of, well, this view isn't that fun. Like, what about the beast? What about the the mark of the beast, and the Antichrist, and the world uh, order, and like the idea that Obama could be the Antichrist? This view isn't that fun. It's just like a quick little chart. So it's like, no fun poopoo head kind of view of the end times. Like, that's no fun. That's poopoo head. Why would you want to have that view? Like, what about all the fun stuff that we could talk about? And so, uh, so this view very simple. Uh, it holds to this idea. I kind of like it for this reason, and I don't know that I would pick one view and say I am this kind of view, and uh, but at this point in my studies, but I would say I kind of like this view because it does look at the book of Revelation and say, okay, the book of Revelation was written in the first century, and it says that uh, the at the end, t- it's not necessarily about the end times as it is for us. The, the phrase that I say a lot is that the Bible's not written to us, it's written for us. You've heard me say that before, right? And so that kind of idea would say, okay, the book of Revelation was written for the first century people, so a lot of those events and symbols were for them, not for us potentially living in the end times. See what I'm saying? So it's for that reason that I kind of like, like this idea because it makes you think about the book of Revelation and the context that, was, that it was written before you go to the end times and charts and things like that. For example, uh, Revelation 13, 18 says something like, uh, this calls for wisdom. Let anyone who has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast for it is man's number. His number is 666. Everybody say, ooh, Thank you. Uh, so, the first century, John, the author of Revelation, was telling, calculate the number of the beast. And I can't imagine, like, some guy in their 20s staying up by campfire light with a candle, figuring out the number and the, and the name of the beast and how 666 calculates into a name, which was kind of a popular idea back then that you could miss, you know, your number, every letter represented a number and you could calculate numbers into names. And so, this, like, 20 year old is like staying up all night drinking the ancient equivalent of Mountain Dew, whatever that was. And he's, he's hammering out these numbers. And then all of a sudden, he, he comes to the end and says, who's Barack Obama? <laughs> I don't, he probably would have thought, oh, and, and people in the in the first century did calculate the number. And there are some translations of uh, the ancient text that actually have the name Nero for the name of the beast, who is the the, the, the Nero, this ancient Roman emperor. His name, Neron, in the, either Latin or the Greek, calc- can calculate out to 666. So the early church kind of had this thinking that oh nero was this calculated number of the beast so whatever that point is that i just made uh i'm kind of struggling because i have this cold i'm just gonna keep blaming the cold as i ramble on up here uh kind of my back kind of you know when you get you're sick your back hurts like my back's killing me Uh everybody say ah. thank you helps me feel better okay so let's let's move on from this view. So this is if, so let me make this clear. This is the amillennial. So uh, where's the millennium? And so the, if you know what that term means, the millennium is a thousand year reign. Someone looking at this view would say, oh well, the, the millennium is a symbolic, spiritual idea of Revelation chapter twenty. Uh, someone holding to the amillennial millennial dispensational view would say, you know, the millennium, a thousand years, is only mentioned five times in this small paragraph of the Book of Revelation. It could be just, uh, symbolic. So why would we make this big theology about the millennium if it's just a small section of verses? Uh, why would we have a big theology about who the beast is or who the antichrist is or what the world currency could be or what the mark of the beast could be when that was written to a first century church? Like all these ideas, uh, kind of say, uh, excuse me, all of the, uh, the, like the Antichrist, the beast, the things mentioned in Revelation would either be seen as already having happened or are spiritual uh, symbolic interpretations of those passages for the all-millennial dispensationalist. Got it so far? Okay, let's compare this view with the dispensational view. This view, the dispensational view, is the most popular view uh, in the United States right now in most of the world, it is uh, I, some things like uh, the Left Behind series taking on this view have made it very popular. Um, uh, other books, I mean, it's kind of a very fun view. This view is, is the dispensational view is, like I said, less than 200 years. It is uh, usually filled with lots of timelines and graphs. And I have this book, I got it from eBay this week. It's called Dispensational Truth by Charles Larkin. And this was published in 1920 as he tried to uh, make timelines and graphs following everything possible in dispensationalism. So I feel like a a kindergarten teacher reading a book story to you. But uh, there's lots of charts and graphs. See all that? Can you see it in the back? kind of see that there's charts going on. You can come up here and read it later. It's kind of a cool coffee table book because there's so many pictures in it. And it has all these, just he he charts everything. He charts the creation of the world. He charts the end times. He charts the feasts of the Lord. He charts Old Testament, New Testament. He charts all the prophets. He has charts and graphs of everything, which is a very modern approach to reading the Bible. It's a very uh, uh, orderly approach. Like you read the The book of Revelation with a timeline in hand, thinking, okay, this seven seal could mean this. And then it talks about the Antichrist after that, so the Antichrist follows in here, and then there's a millennium. And so everything gets categorized like a one-for-one equation, what's in the book of Revelation, into this timeline. Are you familiar with this type of understanding of the book of Revelation? Yeah pretty much. In fact, I would, I would wager that many of you can probably write a timeline. Like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the timeline here in a second. In fact, I'll start it for you. Here's, here's the line. This one's going to be a little longer, a lot more details. This is Christ 2,000 years ago. This is now Mill Sunday School, spelled it right this time. And here is, uh, we don't know when this will happen, we don't know how far, it could be five days from now, it could be a thousand days from now. We don't know when the end times will start, but something will start, then something else will happen, then something else will happen, and then something else will happen, and then something else will happen. And if you've seen the Left Behind series, you kind of know this view. If you have uh, done any like research on what dispensationalism is, you know this view, don't you? Some of you do. At your tables, would you try to fill in as much of the data as you can of pre-millennial, pre-tribulation dispensationalism? I imagine someone at your table may have all the answers. Maybe you're sitting at a table that's dumb. You have none of the answers. That's okay. Talk about how good the coffee is. (laughs) Just kidding. You're not dumb. So ready, Good set timeline. Ready, get set, go. And war, and all of us got trampled on the floor. I wish we'd all been ready. The children died, the days grew cold, a piece of bread. Goodbye, oh. I'll give you like another minute to keep writing it down. Do you need more time? All right, minute will be good. All right, did you get some details onto a little timeline? Did anybody, uh, let's see, where did you begin? What's the first thing that happens in the Left Behind series? What's the first thing that happens as Kirk Cameron is doing his thing uh, in the movie? How many of you, you should get credit if you actually read the book. How many of you read the book, not just watch the movie? Yes, yes, I read the books too, I get credit. So what's the first thing that happens? Yell it out. The rapture. Yes. So the first thing that happens is the rapture. What is the rapture? The rapture is when... uh, John Nelson Darby described it as a secret rapture in which the church just secretly, secretively just like vanishes. They're all gone, and uh, the Left Behind series always depicts it as people's bodies are literally gone, but all their clothes stay, which is pretty like a sweet idea. I'm sure you've seen the movie, and that that comes from one of the readings that can kind of come from is uh, let's see, first. Corinthians 15. If you want to turn there, you can. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 50, says... Uh, says. First Corinthians what? <laughs> 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 50. Sorry, I was struggling to find it. I hate it when you're like in another chapter and you're like, where's verse 50? Oh, it's Wrong chapter. Hate that. First Corinthians fifteen, verse fifty says, "I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and bro- blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does imperishable inherit." Perishable, excuse me, inherit imperishable. Listen, I will tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, which is this idea again. Paul is saying sleep. Uh, I think it's die. We will not all die. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of the eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must—and here, here's the clothing idea, uh, the left behind— series kind of picks up on. For the perishable must be clothed with imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, the mortal will be uh, Im- immortality. Then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Which is a, a, a quotation from, I believe, Hosea. And so this idea that The rapture, the the trumpet will call, people, the Christians will just disappear, their clothes will be left, and people will be wondering what all these clothes are on the ground for. So that's the rapture. That's the first thing that happens in premillennial, pre-tribulation dispensationalism. What happens after the rapture? The trib, the tribulation. So, and the tribulation is usually held as seven years, right? Tribulation. And so this is where we get this idea, I'm underlining right here, pre-trib, that's the, that the rapture is p- before the tribulation. So if anyone ever asks you, are you a pre-tribber or are you a post-tribber, what are they asking you? They're asking you, when will the rapture take place? They're asking you, uh, do you believe like the Left Behind series that the very first thing that happens is the rapture? Or do you believe it, that the, the rapture of the church, church just disappearing, will happen after the tribulation? Or uh, I've heard people say, I'm a mid-tribber. Have you heard of mid-trib? That's that, that, that it, halfway through the seven years of bad times on the earth, the Christian church is just disappears and clothes lay everywhere. Like the left behind series. It only happens in the middle. So how many of you how many of you even know? Like raise your hand if you're a pre tribber. Raise your hand if you're a post tribber. Raise your hand if you're a mid tribber. Wow, it's like a people actually know I'm impressed that you actually know. Most Christians are just like, ah oh, I haven't thought about that stuff. At least you've thought about it. I'm impressed that you've thought about it and thought it out. So that's when according to pre tribulation premillennial dispensationalism, according to the Left Behind series. And by the way, this is the most popular view in America today. Uh, The the rapture does happen before the tribulation. Would you like to see the verse that uh, Christians use to say the rapture happens before the tribulation in the book of Revelation? All right, turn to Revelation chapter 3. And this is uh, the most clearest verse. Actually, uh, Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4, uh, if you interpret the book of Revelation as every, everything has its, uh, its end-time co- counterpart, then uh, Revelation chapter 4 starts off in verse 1 with John saying, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and I heard a voice, and, uh, and, the, uh, and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet. So you just get this idea of the trumpet's call again. Said, come up here and I will show you what may take place after this. Verse 2 At once I was in the Spirit. And so, uh, readers of Revelation that hold to this view say, Oh, uh, the trumpet call, come up here and I was at once in the Spirit, is a representation of John going through the rapture and then reporting the events thereafter. Make sense? Yeah. Sure, why not? So, that's the pre trib uh, understanding. If you're a post tribber, the best verse uh, to prove the the post-trib saying that the rapture happens after the tribulation is in chapter 3, verse 10, I believe. And the, the, the best verse for this is, uh, Since you have kept my commandments uh, to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the world to test those who live on the earth. So you'll be kept uh, from... Wait, that doesn't make any sense because that would also be pre-trib, right? You'd be kept from. Yeah, I I, I got nothing then. Man, that's really embarrassing. I can't even blame that on the cold because it's in my notes and I didn't have a cold when I was preparing. But anyways, uh, other proof. If you're a post-tribber, there is uh, uh, evidences that the Christians will go through hard times. Jesus says we'll go through hard times. The Revelation says, you know, hold on, be encouraged to the end, and then and then you will be saved. So these verses about, you know, God's not going to save you from bad times. There will be bad times. There will be persecution, like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, etc., etc. So there are verses. I just I don't have one written down. I apologize for a pre, uh, excuse me, a post tribulation rapture. And so in the tribulation, name some things. Yell them out. What happens during the trib? A what? Demon, locus. Demon locuses. Locuses. I can't really spell, so that says locuses. I think there's a U in there, right? What else? Like. Yell it out. What, what else happens during this time? The Antichrist. Antichrist. The earthquakes. Quakes. What else? The abomination of desolation. The A of D. (laughs) Abomination of desolation. What else could happen at a tribulation? A a world currency, uh, like the mark of the beast. Uh, Mark of beast... How many of you thought, uh, the usually it's like the seven bowls and the seven seals are poured out, and and if you read Book of Revelation as literal to the end times, that everything has a one-for-one equation for the end times, then you read about the seals, and like earthquakes happen with this seal, and bad stuff happens with this seal, and then other, there's the seven seals, seven bowls, I believe there's seven trumpets too. Yeah, seven trumpets, seven bowls, seven seals all poured out during this time of the tribulation. Antichrist, did we miss anything big? The wormwood, something turns into blood. What? The two witnesses, plagues. Have I created a picture of bad times yet? Yeah, none of it sounds pretty. Uh, the Antichrist, the A of D, the locusts, the mark of the beast, Uh, All these things happen kind of during this tribulation period. And then after seven years, what happens? Do you know? The second coming. Yeah, I hear some people saying it. So here is this big moment of history the second coming of JC, Jesus Christ. So if you are a pre-trib, pre-millennial dispensationalist, you believe that, that things are kind of separated out. That first thing that happens is the rapture, then a tribulation, really bad times. And at the end of the seven years, Jesus comes back uh, as he has promised us. And he comes back here. And then what happens? The first judgment? Yeah, I guess we could put that in there. First judgment. And then What happens? The millennium. Everybody say the millennium. The millennium. It happens a thousand year reign of Christ on the earth. Some people are resurrected and get to judge with Christ as the earth uh, is not destroyed yet. Um, there's 1,000 years. Most people that are pre-trib, pre-millennial dispensationalists believe in a literal 1,000 years, like you can count them, 1,000 years out. Um, and they say, it would say that there's a 1,000 years of history that will happen Uh, and it says that the beast is locked up and the doors are shut so that he cannot deceive the nation in Revelation chapter 20. And so uh, there's there's this time period of not so much bad stuff going on, but still people coming to Christ, people not coming to Christ during this thousand year reign. If you, (coughs) excuse me struggling up here. If you are, if someone asks you, are you a pre Are you a post What are they asking you? They're asking you, does Jesus return before or after the millennium? So just like, so now you know what to answer. At least you know what someone is asking. If they say, are you a pre-tribber or a post-tribber? You at least know that they're asking you, where in Revelation, where in relation to the tribulation, does the rapture happen? Got it? And if someone asks you, like you leave here today, and you're just walking around making small talk and talking to the ladies and getting numbers, and one of the ladies says, Are you a premillennialist or a postmillennialist? What is the lady asking you? When does Jesus return? Before the millennium or after the millennium? You got it? So at least you know what the question is if someone asks you that question. The people that say Jesus happens after Jesus, second coming happens after the millennium, usually would say that the the thousand years is more symbolic of a long period of time. Some post-millennialists would say that we could potentially be in the millennium right now and that Christ's return is it will come at some point in history, but not necessarily after exactly a thousand years post-tribulation. So that's the, that's the millennium for you, um, which was pretty funny. I was just talking with David Perkins the other day, last Friday, and we were talking about uh, pre-mill, post-mill, and I was like, David, are you a pre-miller or a post-miller and he's like I don't know I think I'm a post-miller because he saw this debate then he showed me this link to this debate and so we were talking about pre-mill post-mill and etc we're going on and on and 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 someone came in on Friday and heard us talking and was like what are you guys talking about I thought you all went to village Inn after the mill (laughs) it was so funny I was like that is hilarious I'm gonna steal that and tell that joke on Sunday morning and so I just did I thought you went to Village Inn after. He was like really confused. Like, uh, what are you talking about? <laughs> Anyways, so that is the view, the premillennial, pre-tribulation dispensationalism. Is anybody else thoroughly confused? A couple people are? Yeah. The, the hard thing is that that this view is so clear, written out, and, and you could come up here later and look at this book, and there's like drawings of what the beast looks like, and the seven heads of the dragon, and the reaper, and the son of righteousness, and Jesus with a sword in his mouth, and all these cool things. And it's all laid out with pictures, and it's all graphed, and it's all like perfectly written out, and then someone could come along and say, well, I believe that this happens here and this happens there. Or they could just throw the whole thing out and say, I'm not really a dispensationalist. And so what do you do with that? Uh, it's just like there's no set equation for how it all has to work. There's very good ideas. There's people that are very adamant about pre-trib, pre-millennial dispensationalists, which is probably the majority of people you'll meet uh, ar- around when it comes to end-time stuff. But uh, there's details and there's things that uh, we're just not that sure about. We're sure about the for Remember last time we talked about the five for-sures. Jesus will return. The dead will be raised. There will be a judgment. Uh, there, there will be the end of this world as we know it. And we're not really sure when that's all going to happen. Those are the for And they all fall into this as well. Uh, any graph that you see of the end times, you should at least see those five for-sures, which I guess I forgot the last one. So at the end of a thousand years, this, the end of the world is, as we know it. Like the song by R.E.M. It's really fast, but you know the chorus. So so that's the end of the world as we know it. We see the second coming of Jesus. Uh, There'd be judgment here. There would also be a judgment here. The second judgment, the dead would be raised with the rapture as well as the second coming and uh, and the second judgment. So you see all the, the bits of the five first shores in this graph. And so I want to just kind of wrap up and talk about a bigger picture for a second. So if you've been writing and, and making these graphs, just <sighs> calm down for a second. Take it easy. Um, this last point says Jesus for his bride. And I just want to talk about this This big idea that Jesus, when asked about his his coming back, he would compare it to uh, a groom coming to get his bride and uh, I know some of you in here are engaged. Patrick and Megan are engaged where are you guys at there you are Bowman and Kim are engaged, and they 're planning a wedding, and they 're getting details together. And they're picking colors and a place and working with a budget and deciding what food they want to give their guests. And all these things are important. They're important decisions that have to be made for that very special day. And uh, they do matter. The, the choices that they make will will create their own wedding and, and how they want to um, you know, do their, their wedding day. Those decisions and details are important, but they're not important as the marriage, right? The wedding ceremony... Usually lasts somewhere between a half hour and an hour, maybe at most. the 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 reception will then last, you know, a couple hours after the wedding, usually, and then the marriage lasts the rest of their earthly existence, and so. What's more important, the marriage or the ceremony? Well, the marriage is going to be much more important. We should be excited about the marriage, not not just the day. The day is very important. Like, I've been married three years now, and Eric asked me, what's your happiest day? And I would still say, I think the day we got married was was my best day. It was just a really good day when our, when our lives came together and our marriage began. And so the wedding day is important, the, the, but the marriage is more important. And And I want to just say that when Jesus returns, some of these details and, and the, the planning of this, you know, marriage that, that Jesus calls it, all these details will, will end up coming together, but it's, the, it's being with our Savior that is for eternity, that is what we should be looking forward to. And I want to just talk about, um, so this is the part you can kind of take notes on if you want. I find it extremely interesting, this idea of how, how we do weddings now. You know, everyone knows that you know you, you send out invitations and you get everything together and then uh uh you have a reception and all these cool things that you know uh, weddings are very similar in fact uh this last week was it last friday uh daniel grothy called me from the hospital and said his little boy is in, a, uh, is in the hospital. He, he ended up just having a cold, but at the time he didn't know what was going on and a lot of tests were be do- being done for Daniel Grothy's little boy. And it was a Friday night and he asked me with uh, 50 minutes notice if I could uh, stop everything, go get on my suit and perform the wedding that he was supposed to do in 50 minutes. <laughs> and I of course said, yeah, I'm not doing anything. (laughs) Sure, why not? And so I went all the way home. I live in Manitou, from the church to Manitou, put on a suit, went up to Woodman Valley Chapel, Stone Chapel, and did a wedding. Yes. And it worked out. And in the wedding, the ceremony, I kind of joked. I said, let me introduce myself to you guys, as well as the bride and groom here, (laughs) because... Daniel Grothy has been working with them doing their premarital counseling and stuff, but I'm here to do the wedding because he, his son is in the hospital, at which, did I already say his son turned out to be fine? It was just a cold, but he didn't know at the time. Uh, anyways, uh, but I said, I said, on this occasion, on this day, all the details, whether they've come together, whether they won't come together, I can guarantee you that after this ceremony, you'll be married before this congregation, before the state of Colorado when we sign the certificate, and before God. We, you will be married. I will marry you despite details coming together together. Um, you will be married, and so uh, that, so I say that to say, you know, we kind of know what a wedding looks like and the things that happen. But an ancient wedding was very different. And to start to talk about the wedding, I just want to quickly show you. Uh, this is how houses were built back then. This would be uh, a courtyard. They would call it an insula way back in the day, and you would build a house right here and have a little doorway to the courtyard, and you would live there in in this house. Uh, you'd live there with your family and the the wife and you would have some kids and your oldest son would grow up and your oldest son would get married. And then your oldest son would build a house right next to your house using your wall, make a little doorway right here. And your son would live in this house and your family, his family would live there and then they would have little kids. And then maybe they would build a house here and have a little doorway here and and on and on. And it saved a lot of money constructing a house. If the house was very simply made like it was in the ancient world, four walls, thatched roof, uh, usually stones in the Middle Eastern uh, world. If uh, you built onto your father's house and a house consisted of four walls, one of the walls was already built. Good deal, right? Like one fourth of your cost, cut down. No big deal. So like when we get married today, you know, we leave our parents, we go rent an apartment or we, you know, get a house or something like that. In the ancient world, you would just build on to your father's house. And, uh, and so that's kind of how things were done. And so if you're the son uh, of your father, and your father maybe does some business with uh, s- someone from another village, and you go with your dad and do business with your dad, and you see the daughter of the guy whom your dad does business with, and you're like, that girl is hot. And you say to your dad, dad, that girl is hot and your dad says, do you want me to ask about her? And you say, yes, because she's hot. Uh, Then your dad, your dad, and your dad, family, maybe mom, uh, maybe just like some uh, older brothers, some cousins would be there. uh, They would go approach this other family and say, uh, my son likes your daughter. Can can we talk about arranging a marriage? Very different than how we do things, right? Right. Is that how anybody found their their uh, their spouse no it 's just very different than how we do things and so these two families would come together and talk about arranging the marriage and they would have to uh, in that in the Jewish community the ancient world, there was a bride price that had to be paid from the groom and his family to the bride and her family because they were going to lose their daughter and their daughter was going to go live in uh, the the father 's son's house and be, they would build the house next to the father so they're losing a daughter and so i imagine the conversation would be very awkward as you're like deciding what price to pay for this girl you're like have you ever seen anyone so beautiful as my daughter i would like a thousand shekels or denarii whatever uh and then and then what how do you respond to that so the the husband's the husband to be's family is like well yeah she's beautiful but look at her arms they're so skinny she's not that strong <laughs> I'll give you 500. And then it goes back. And they're like, what do you mean? They might be skinny, but she's strong. I've seen her pick up a cow. (laughs) Like, okay. So maybe 700. It's like, well, I couldn't part from my daughter for anything less than 750. Uh, And they're like, okay, 750 denarii or whatever. And they they give the money. The groom gives the money to the bride's family. And then the bride would be engaged. And she was, uh, the term used, bought at a price. And that term, bought at a price, is something that Paul uses, doesn't he? He says that we as believers have been bought at a price. And and so, and then the son to, to, he's engaged now. The son would tell the bride to be, I, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. And so the son would go home and he'd start working on this house. He'd start putting up the four walls, uh, the other uh, three walls, excuse me, making the door, putting on the roof. And uh, he would be excited and want to get married very soon. And he would say, dad, it's, it's ready. Let's go, you know, let's get me married. I, I want to get married. And the dad would look at the house and say, Son, the, the, maybe the roof isn't ready yet. If there was a storm, the roof would come off. Son, you have to make this house ready now because once you get married, there won't be time to, to fix the house. You'll be doing other things. You'll be busy. Do the house, uh, fix it, do it right, do it now. Then you'll get married. And Jesus has this, uh, the, this saying. Someone asks him, w- when will you come back, Jesus? And, and Jesus says that the, the, the sweet quote that's on the back of your millet, he says, Jesus says, no one knows. About that day or the hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. This idea that the father would say to the son, son, the house is ready. You're ready. To get married, and so this this very familial f- family centered idea of of getting married and and the father giving the son permission and telling the son that he 's ready to go get married and uh, another idea that that is in this image of of the rooms and the house Jesus himself says in john fourteen one says uh, don 't let your hearts be troubled. trust in God, trust also in me." In my father's house are many rooms. I you know I always kind of picture a mansion, but an ancient house looked more like this with the rooms and the, and the community center, the, this, this courtyard. He says, I, I am going to prepare a place for you and I will come back and take you there with me so that you may be where I am. So you see this image that Jesus is preparing a place like this ancient world of someone preparing a house for his bride and he's going to come back for his bride. And then eventually the dad would say, okay, son, the house is ready. You're ready. It's time to get married. And then what would happen is the son would send out a bunch of Facebook uh, invites and e-invites and, and get, do his engagement photos and then make some stationery and send it out. Just kidding. That's what we do. Back then, what they did, it was much more like, okay, it's the wedding day. Let's do this, like, right now. There's no, like, lots and lots. You just have to be ready for the wedding. So the father would say, son, the house is ready. You're ready. I gave you the permission. It's time to get married. So the son would gather his groomsmen up. They would go marching towards the bride, partying, singing, dancing. There would be trumpets, the musical instruments back then made out of a, a horn of a, of a ram, and they blow it. And then, you know, they're going into this town, this group of rowdy guys, to get the bride. And I'm sure every girl in that village must have thought. It's my wedding. You know, so many girls were waiting to be married and engaged. But of course, there was only one of the girls. And and they they find the girl, they get her, and and then she has to get ready. She has to get her bridesmaids ready. And Jesus has a parable about this, the parable of the ten bridesmaids. He says, if five of them were ready and had their oil and their lamps and everything ready for the ceremony, and the other five did not. And they had to go into town and get the oil for the lamps so that when they were in the town, the, the the bridegroom, the groom came and those girls... The, the, the foolish ones, missed out because they weren't ready. And so in the same way, Jesus says, we need to be ready for the end times. We need to be prepared for what will take place. We need to know that it can happen at any moment. And he says, he comes like a thief in the night. And so the dudes get the girl, not just the girl, but like her whole family, bring her and her whole family back to the, the courtyard. And there's the, the first thing that happens is the, they go into the room, the bride and the groom, and they consummate the wedding. If you don't know what that means, go back to 6th grade health class. And then after the consummation of the the marriage, there's a party for like 7 days. It's feasting and celebration and the families all live together in the in the in the community and there's just days and days of partying and feasting and hanging out together. And it's this image that Jesus gives about what heaven will be like. It's this image that Jesus says uh Heaven is going to be like this down-to-earth family that comes together. Two families that come together. God's family and the human, the church family that comes together. And there's going to be a party. And there's going to be a celebration. There's going to be a feasting that Jesus is returning for his church, for his bride. And it's something we should be excited about. It's something we should be looking forward to. It's this marriage in heaven of our, us spending eternity with God. And so despite the details, you know, we just put up the charts of premillennial and dispensationalism and all these events, you know, that's kind of like planning the wedding. And any engaged couple will tell you that planning of the wedding is, is hard and it's not easy and it's confusing and it's, it, you know, there's budgeting and all these decisions that have to be made. And that's, that's not the fun part. The fun part is the, is the day, is the wedding day that begins the marriage. And so in the same way... Um, Let's grow into excitement as we anticipate Christ's return, as we anticipate marriage with God the Father, that, that we can, in some ways, you know, look t- towards our wedding with excitement in the same way as we build excitement about being in heaven and this idea of being married to God. Let's pray. Jesus, right now, we do thank you. We want to just build our excitement towards your kingdom to what heaven will be like, to you coming back for us. And God, we thank you so much for some of the images you give us of this end time being like you coming back for your bride. That as as, as a bride is so excited to be married and, and to see her groom, that we as a church will be so excited to see our groom and to be married in heaven to, to you, to God, that this 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 heavenly marriage, this unification of ourselves to you that we can look forward to that. And so God, we thank you as we've studied the end times this month and continue uh, next Sunday as well. God, we thank you for the things that you've shown us, the things that that we know will happen, that you have promised us you're coming back. So God, we praise you and we worship you. We excitedly look for your second coming. And and everyone said, amen. All right, everybody. Next week, Mr. Rob Stenett will be here. Go in peace. But before you do so, high five some peeps. Do it. High five. five. All right. See you guys next week. Peace.